It's April 5th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. A good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report. It's your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First, former U.S. President Donald Trump faced arraignment yesterday. I'm going to explain to you the charges, the strength of the case legally, and new information about the judge involved. It suggests, folks, a political bias. Second, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is heading to Poland this morning, where farmers there are promising to ruin his visit. I'll explain why that is, plus why you should care. Third, the president of Mexico said something very odd yesterday about China and the fentanyl drug crisis. I'll share with you what he said, plus why it demonstrates that America just can't trust our southern neighbor. We then close out the podcast with some good news. Two new studies showing that a simple brisk walk or picking up weights can actually help you lower your chances of death and even help you build a family. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. Former U.S. President Donald Trump was arrested officially yesterday in New York, marking the first time in recent American history that a former president has faced criminal charges. By the way, the last time that we saw a president arrested was when a police officer stopped President Ulysses S. Grant from speeding in his horse-drawn buggy back in 1872. True story. So we are going to talk about two things this morning with a focus on what exactly the charges are and how strong the case is legally. I'm also going to share with you some new information about the judge in the case to include recent disclosures that he has made repeated donations to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and other political opponents of Mr. Trump. And we're going to talk about this, folks, from the perspective of, well, being neutral. Regardless of what we think of Democrats or Republicans or Trump or Biden, instead, we're going to explore the facts as they are and then just make a reasoned decision about what it all means. So let's start with what we know about the charges. So as expected, the Manhattan District Attorney charged Trump with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. So to get into details here, the allegation is that Trump falsified 11 invoices, 12 general ledger entries, and 11 checks that falsely recorded payments as legal services to his attorney rather than what they actually were, which was reimbursements for when the attorney gave cash to a former Trump doorman and two women to effectively buy their silence. In other words, hush money. And by that, I mean this. The doorman alleged that Trump had an out-of-wedlock child. So he was given money by Trump's attorney to keep quiet. Meanwhile, the two women alleged that they had engaged in, well, intimate affairs with Mr. Trump. And like the doorman, they were allegedly given money by the attorney to not disclose such. Now, in and of itself, none of those payments, again, if true, are illegal. You can pay someone to not talk about, say, embarrassing behavior. However, the illegal part, according to prosecutors, is twofold in this case. First, these transactions weren't documented honestly for the New York State taxman, and that is a misdemeanor under New York law. 
But Trump was charged with more serious crimes, felonies. And to be honest, legal observers on both the left and the right are a little bit surprised and confused about the rationale here of advancing this to felonies. So just let me try to unpack what we think that we know. The Manhattan DA says that the illegally documented reimbursements, those uh, payments to the doorman and those ladies, those were made to hide another crime. Now, in this case, the other crime is probably an illegal campaign contribution. That's because Trump got a campaign benefit from those payments. They helped him avoid bad or embarrassing headlines and eventually secure the presidency. In other words, prosecutors are saying that Trump intentionally hid these payments for political benefit, which is a federal offense. Plus, the amounts involved here violate federal laws on how much an individual can give to a campaign. Now, I should be very clear, Trump denies all of these allegations and says that there was nothing new revealed in the court proceedings yesterday. Fake news, he said. It's a witch hunt. Okay, let's now talk about the second question of the morning. What's the strength of the New York District Attorney's case? Well, legally speaking, not very strong at all. So as reported by Reuters News Service and confirmed by former members of the district attorney's office, federal prosecutors looked at this case regarding the illegal federal campaign contributions, and they declined to prosecute Trump over the issue. Additionally, the Manhattan DA's office twice looked at this case before dropping it both times. Now, the reason for that gets a little bit complicated, but the bottom line is that lawyers inside the DA's office at the time, as well as a law firm that they hired to give an independent review, said that the case here was either weak or involved some pretty squirrely, untested legal theories. So here's a little bit on that last untested part. So the Manhattan DA is now using a New York state law and then applying that to a federal crime, which he's not technically sanctioned to do. Plus, the federal government has already decided that there was no federal crime there to be charged. So, you confused yet? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, if so, you're not alone. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who's a longtime opponent of Trump, actually was on CNN and was asked for his take on all of this, specifically the legal theories behind the charges, to which he said with confusion, quote, what is the legal theory that ties the misdemeanor case of false business records to the intent to conceal the other crime, the federal crime, which makes it a, a felony? Well, it simply isn't there, end quote. He went on to say that, quote, if I had to characterize this indictment, it is disappointment, end quote. Well, that begs the question, why did this Manhattan DA decide to bring this case forward at all? Well, on Monday, we talked about how the district attorney, a man named Alvin Bragg, is a Democrat. And he explicitly ran on charging Mr. Trump with something once he was elected. And that, folks, takes us to a very, very important update about another figure involved in this case. It's the judge, a man named Juan Merchant. Federal records yesterday released by the media outlet Town Hall showed that Judge Merchant has given at least three campaign contributions to Democrats. 
Those contributions include, first, Joe Biden's presidential campaign back in 2020. Second, another donation to an organization that gets Democrats to the polls on Election Day. And third, a donation to an organization called Stop Republicans, which is dedicated to, quote, resisting Trump and the Republican Party, end quote. So those are the facts, my friends, irrespective of what we think of Trump or Republicans or anyone's personal behavior or alleged um, extramarital affairs. So as ever, I'm going to encourage you all to decide what to make of the facts that we've just talked about this morning. But if I might offer my analysis and opinion for your consideration, I'll say this for you. The facts suggest to me that this, folks, is politically motivated, right? The whole prosecution here seems to be about politics, from the district attorney himself to the makeup of the grand jury that we talked about on Monday to the very confusing and befuddling charges that were revealed yesterday. It appears, folks, that there's something other than seeking justice at work here. So what it suggests is that, well, it's what I've seen when I worked abroad for the CIA. It's tribal justice, where one tribe gets into power, they prosecute and persecute other tribes to stay in power and enrich themselves. In fact, I'll tell you about an African politician that I met once. I won't name the country, but we were discussing how his system of government worked. And he told me that the whole goal of his party was to get into power, to raid the treasury for their coalition of tribes, and then target the other tribes that were opposed to them, either through persecution or prosecution. And they did that knowing that eventually they would be kicked out. But until they were, grab as much as you can as fast as you can. That's what he told me. Well, not surprisingly, that led to an absolute disaster for his country, from its politics to its economy, because it scared people away from either investing or wanting to live there. Everybody was waiting for the next tribal witch hunt or manufactured crisis. And that's the danger that I see here in this case. This moment in U.S. history, putting aside whether we like Trump or Republicans, is it's a moment of danger and it's a moment of crisis. The facts as presented so far suggest that this district attorney and those folks that support him are playing footsie with disaster. They're undermining the rule of law, which is fundamentally to pursue justice without fear or favor. Because if justice becomes tribal, well, there's no justice at all. And without justice, eventually, there is no country. With that, ladies and gentlemen, let's take our first break of the morning. Now, most of you likely won't hear any ads over the next couple of minutes. I wanted to give you all a few weeks without interruption. So stretch those legs, sip on a cup of coffee or juice, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue our news this morning, heading off now to Europe. And this news has to do with a bunch of very angry farmers who are targeting Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky as he has to Poland today. Now, to understand what's going on with these angry Polish farmers and why you should care, We need to go back in time to just before the war. So for years, Ukraine's wheat and other agricultural goods generally didn't go to European countries. In fact, there were actually tariffs and quotas preventing that kind of trade because 
Europe had questions about the quality of Ukraine's wheat and corn. Plus, there were worries about possible exposure of Ukraine's soil to nuclear material from the old Chernobyl nuclear disaster decades ago. And that's why Ukraine's agricultural products usually went not to Europe, but rather poor nations in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. But once Russia invaded, all of that changed. First, Ukraine's wheat and corn and sunflowers were stuck in a blockade. Moscow wasn't letting anything in or out of Ukraine's ports on the Black Sea. And that meant that those poor nations around the world were pushed into a crisis. There were very real concerns about mass starvation because they couldn't buy those goods from Kiev. Meanwhile, European countries wanted to show solidarity with Ukraine. Of course, they were being invaded. So they dropped those tariffs and quotas and all those ag goods, and they allowed those grains into their countries with the promise of sending the, the wheat and the corn and all that back out into the international market. It wouldn't be for domestic European consumption, in other words. Well, last July, as the world was, well, frankly, panicking about a global food crisis, the warring parties in Kiev and Moscow reached a deal. It's called the Black Sea Grain Initiative. And the bottom line here is that Russia agreed to let Ukraine export its wheat and corn and sunflowers to those poor nations. But then something very peculiar happened. According to data from the United Nations and reporting from the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg News and others, the grain went to European buyers, not poor countries in need. In fact, under this deal, 25 million tons have been exported out of Ukraine since last summer, with almost all of it going to the countries of Italy, Spain, Turkey, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Also, a little bit to China. But that creates a problem, because, you see, those European buyers in those countries that I just mentioned, they used to buy their grains from their own farmers, or farmers in Eastern Europe, like Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania. Well, those farmers in those countries still have their crops to sell, but there's nobody left locally or regionally to buy it. In other words, farmers in Eastern Europe have lost their markets. Now they are in big financial trouble. So that, folks, is the mess that is percolating this morning in Eastern Europe, and it helps explain today's news. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is traveling to Poland this morning, actually to say thank you for the support that they've been given by the Polish government. But according to local and British press, farmers there are planning major protests, both against Zelensky and their own Polish government. And it's all because of this fallout from, well, we can call it the wheat wars. So let's go through the list of outraged farmers starting in the country of Poland. The head of Polish Farmers Association, a man named Maciej Sobuk, said that he and other farmers are planning to, quote, spoil the visit of Zelensky, end quote, to protest the dumping of Ukrainian grain in his nation. When asked what kind of well, spoiling he and the other Polish fellows are planning to do, he said, quote, there are a lot of ideas, but it is too early to talk about it, end quote. Yeah, oh, that doesn't sound good. All right, so these protests come three weeks, by the way, after Poland's agricultural minister was mobbed at a local fair by these same farmers, and he was forced to flee. And then five days later, he was tracked down once again by these farmers and pelted with eggs. He fled that venue as well. 
All right, next up, we move away from Poland to Romania, where the farmers there took their tractors and harvesters last week to a meeting of European officials and protested in the streets, promising more to come all over this issue of Ukrainian grain dumping. Also, we've got outraged farmers in the country of Bulgaria. Grain producers there blocked border crossings recently for three days, demanding compensation over this Ukrainian dumping. And that, folks, is because these farmers are sitting on almost 80% of their sunflower crop and more than 3 million tons of wheat from last year's harvest. And that's money that they need to plant this year's harvest. So all in all, folks, we're seeing these same kinds of protests by farmers in Hungary, Slovakia, and even France, too. So I'm going to keep my eyes on this, folks, and keep you posted, because if I can offer my analysis and opinion here, we have invested billions of our taxpayer dollars in aid and military equipment in this war between Russia and Ukraine. In fact, the White House announced yesterday that it has given its 35th allotment of cash to Kiev. They're giving them another $2.6 billion worth of aid. So if these protests grow, we could see a change of governments throughout Eastern Europe or a change in support by these governments over the war in Ukraine. And if that should happen, it would put the entire Western strategy of support to Ukraine at risk. Which, to be very clear, means that all of those billions of your taxpayer dollars are at risk, spent for nothing. And that is a big story, folks. It's one that I will be watching. More to come. Finally, this morning, a very curious development out of Mexico. The president of that country, Mr. Lopez Obrador, announced yesterday that he's asking China to help stop the flow of the drug fentanyl into his country. And yet, one month ago, this same Lopez Obrador said that Mexico didn't produce any of that drug, nor does his country even consume it. So that's odd. Let me unpack this story, folks, with a very important reminder first of why it's so important and why you should care. So last year, over 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses. It's a heartbreaking number. So of those 100,000 Americans, most died from one single drug, fentanyl. But, you know, that actually hides something a lot more shocking. Folks, if you are an American aged 18 to 45, the leading cause of death is an overdose from fentanyl, right? More than cancer, more than car accidents or any other type of death. So to just state the obvious, this isn't just a problem. This is a, a crisis. Now, according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and the U.S. Homeland Security, most of that fentanyl killing your fellow Americans is originating in Mexico. It's cooked up by Mexican cartels and Mexican labs, but they purchase the precursor chemicals to make the stuff mostly from Chinese pharmaceutical labs. Although Indian drug companies are also complicit here. Regardless, for years, the U.S. has tried to work with both the Chinese and Mexican governments to stop this illicit trade. But in the case of Beijing... They either deny that their pharmaceutical companies are contributing to the problem or they say, yeah, we're going to do what we can, but then do nothing. That, by the way, is according to the U.S. DEA and the U.S. State Department. So as for the Mexican government and their response to the, the pleas that we've offered to say, come on, help us to stop this. 
Well, there are times in which the Mexicans have been collaborative. Well, but as of late, that's changed. In testimony last month to the U.S. Senate, the head of the DEA said that Mexican officials have refused to cooperate on efforts targeting fentanyl labs inside of Mexico. Right. So here's her quote. We are not getting information from the Mexicans on fentanyl seizures anymore. We are not getting information on seizures of those precursor chemicals either. Well, shortly after that testimony in March, reporters asked the Mexican president about this DEA claim, to which the president, Lopez Obrador, said, quote, here in Mexico, we do not produce fentanyl. We do not even have consumption of the drug at all, end quote. Now, that was, by all accounts, an absolute lie. And it prompted many Republicans on Capitol Hill to suggest that America ought to take on the cartels by ourselves with our own military, launch special operations to kill cartel members with or without the approval of the Mexican government on their soil. Well, President Lopez Obrador was outraged by that idea. No surprise. He said, quote, we will not allow any foreign government, let alone foreign armed forces, to mingle in our territory, end quote. Well, one month later, just yesterday at a press conference, that same Mr. Lopez Obrador suggested, well, actually, there is a fentanyl problem in his country, but actually it's China who's to blame. So he read a letter yesterday that he allegedly sent to President Xi of China, dated March 22nd, that said, quote, we come to you with this request that for humanitarian reasons, you help us control shipments of fentanyl that are sent from China to our country, end quote. He went on to ask China to please confirm when and where fentanyl was being sent, as well as how much and by whom. Hmm. So what are we to make of that? And what's really going on here, right? The Mexican president is talking out of both sides of his mouth. Well, to answer those questions, let me now pivot from facts and data to my analysis and opinion based on my years as a CIA officer. The Mexican government, ladies and gentlemen, is utterly and absolutely corrupt, infiltrated by cartel interests from top to bottom. And I'll just give you a couple examples here. The former Mexican Minister of Defense, which is like our Secretary of Defense, he was on the payroll of a cartel during his service. Also, the former head of the Mexican FBI was recently convicted in U.S. court for being on the payroll of a Mexican cartel, too. And during that trial, one of the witnesses described a cartel payment going to the campaign of the current president, Mr. Lopez Obrador himself, years ago when he was a mayor. Meanwhile, most of the country is lawless. It's controlled by cartels who, say, demand payments from avocado farmers during harvest. They expect a cut from the profits or the farmers die. The same thing happens to drivers on the roads throughout the country. You reach a cartel checkpoint and you pay up or you die. In other words, folks, we've got a failed state south of America's border. It's run by criminal gangs. And that is not going to change anytime soon. Now, there are some glimmers of hope for that country. For instance, their Navy is largely made up of some pretty trustworthy men and women. It's arguably the only governmental body that could save that country and create law and order. But the question is, how do we stop or slow the flow of drugs like fentanyl if our Mexican partners in the meantime are complicit in this trade? And while we're at it, 
how do we stop the flow of illegal migrants into this country when Mexican authorities choose not to stop it because, once again, they cash in on the cartel trade of humans in this case as well? So those are important questions that I'm going to continue to ask and answer here on The Right Report in future episodes. But for now, to just stay focused on the issue of drugs, I think that the facts and my experience point me to one decision. To earnestly address this issue, we are going to need to target and kill cartel members and destroy their infrastructure, from their drug labs to their cell phone towers. Because, yes, in case you didn't know, they control and operate their own cell phone network throughout the country of Mexico. And I say this and offer this to you without bravado or joy, because what I propose means warfare, and no reasonable person celebrates that. But what's clear is that we don't have a reliable partner in Mexico City to work with. We don't have a government south of the border who wants to help us save more of our young people from dying. Instead, the truth is that we have a Mexican government who profits from the cartels who poison our country, and they have no interest in stopping. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break, which will probably be ad-free for now. But regardless, we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. Today's podcast was full of a lot of very important, but let's just say it, some pretty heavy news. And sometimes it's nice to just enjoy, yeah, important, but joyful and hopeful news. So let's do that. About a month ago, we got two pieces of really great medical news that did not get a lot of coverage. So first, consider this. Researchers at the University of Cambridge in the UK reported that just 11 minutes a day of moderate exercise, like a brisk walk, that can cut your risk of early death by upwards of 23%, specifically by lowering the risk of cardiovascular disease and certain cancers. Again, just 11 minutes of fast walking a day. That's pretty doable. By the way, the results of that study are available in the British Journal of Sports Medicine if you want to dig into that data. Meanwhile, there was a second related study released on how exercise can address infertility amongst men. And that's a really important issue. Recent data suggests that there's a shocking drop in male fertility related to sperm counts. Lots of debate as to why this is happening, but data show that modern men have about half of the, uh, shall we say, male messengers as compared to their grandfathers, which brings us to some good and pretty fascinating news. Researchers from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Mass General Brigham reported in late February that men who reported lifting or moving heavy objects at work, they had a 46% higher sperm concentration and a 44% higher total sperm count compared to those men with less physical jobs. But why is that? Well, researchers said that the exercise or the process of lifting heavy pieces of equipment and such appears to increase testosterone levels. In fact, men who reported more physical activity at work also had these higher levels of the male sex hormone. So the point, folks, is that the human body, it's made to move. So if you needed some motivation to get moving well there you have it
And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, let me leave you with the words that inspire me. They're the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.